Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today we're talking crypto, stablecoins and NFTs and their incredible, astonishing rise in value in 2021 and their subsequent equally astonishing collapse. Will this be viewed in hindsight as the epic of all-time madness of crowds events, dwarfing in scale all previous bubbles? Our guest is Zeke Fox. Zeke's new book is published today, September 12th, 2023, Number Go Up, Inside Crypto's Wild Rise and Staggering Fall. Zeke had a front row seat, meeting with many of the key characters and even being present at some of the key events, such as the fall of FTX. His book charts crypto's incredible rise in 2021 to new heights of valuations and expectations through its collapse in 2022, the loss of fortunes and the uncovering of fraud. His book also charts the dark, tragic side of from people quitting their jobs to earn meme coins to human trafficking, slaves made to work to scam money from Westerners with crypto and stablecoins as the media. Zeke is an investigative reporter for Bloomberg Businessweek and Bloomberg News. The book's fascinating, in equal parts exciting and shocking, and I encourage listeners to get a copy. I also want to note that we have an upcoming HC Insider podcast live event, this time on September the 14th in central London. Hosted by Onyx Capital Group, we're discussing the future of oil derivatives and who really prices oil today. The panel consists of myself moderating, Greg Newman, CEO of Onyx Capital Group, Savas Manousos, former head of trading at SEPSA, and former guests Kurt Chapman and Tor Svelland, founder and CEO of Svelland Capital. The event is free, but invitation only, and spaces are limited. So if you have interest in coming along and seeing the panel, please do email me or reach out via LinkedIn. If not, you will be able to hear the panel discussion on a future episode of the podcast. As always, you can really support the show by leaving a positive review or five stars on the platform you're listening on and sharing with your colleagues. And as always, I hope you enjoy this episode. Zeke, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot, Paul. Your book comes out today, September 12th, so the number, number go up and the rise and fall of, of crypto. And, and that's what we're discussing. And obviously, we don't have time to go into every aspect of the book. But I, you know, off the bat, I recommend people go read it. But hopefully, we'll capture some of that story, which is also very relevant to the commodities world, as both many traders left to go into that sector in its, in its very much in its height, but also the proliferation of blockchain technology and applications seen as a, a solution to transparency and, and more efficient trading, some of which might still be <laughs> remain valid. But here we're very much focusing on the, the crypto side of things. And it is an absolutely equally fascinating and shocking book and, and journey that you've been on uncovering all of this. Maybe, maybe we can sort of start where the book starts, which is in Miami at a big crypto convention in June 2021. And just give us some sense of kind of the the scale, the the hype, the language, and the, and the people there, and just this incredible sort of moment in human history, which sort of feels like I don't know the tulip bulb mania unlocked by modern technology and on steroids with the amount of money that was flowing around. I love that intro. That's exactly right. And I'm 
I'm a longtime investigative reporter for Bloomberg Businessweek. I've always written about the shady side of Wall Street. Like my favorite thing is to find someone who's operating in kind of a gray area and have them explain to me how it works, how they're making lots of money, how they think they're going to get away with it, and then to expose it for the world to see. And you might think, oh, great, like crypto is perfect for him. And a lot of people had said that to me, but I'd always resisted writing about crypto. There was something about it that just didn't appeal. Partly, some of it is just so transparently silly. Like people would say, hey, uh, buy Dogecoin. It's got like this funny picture of a dog. And then it would go up. My editor at Business Week, things, the Bitcoin was going up and up. The total market value of all cryptocurrencies was heading towards like $3 trillion. He came by my desk and said, why don't you look into stable coins? And if you don't know these, these are coins that are supposed to be always worth a dollar because they're backed by real, real dollars in the bank. So that's like Tether, USDC, DAI. I mean, there's a whole bunch of them. But there was this one called Tether that was growing and growing. It was supposed to have $50 billion in the bank, but nobody knew where this money was. And the company was just, I mean, it was, it was, I'd never seen so many red flags. Like it was hard to tell where the company was based. The CEO and the CFO had never given interviews. Some people thought the CEO didn't exist. He does exist. They'd been sued by New York's attorney general for lying about the reserves. The, one of the founders of the company was a child actor from the Disney movie, The Mighty Ducks, which great movie, but like odd background for the founder of a crypto company. And this Tether coin was like at the center of the crypto market. On some days, $100 billion of Tether would trade, would be trading. And everyone I talked to was like, yes, this is a crucial part of the crypto economy. It's sort of like the on-ramp for real dollars to get into the crypto world. And yet, even insiders had like a lot of questions about it. So my first stop, as you said, was, okay, there's got to be something these crypto guys know that I don't know. Like, why do they trust this company that seems so untrustworthy on the surface? And luckily, there was this huge COVID uh, vaccines had become available. And this was one of the first big conferences of any type in the US um, in like, you know, a couple of years it was in Miami. There were, I don't know what the final attendee count was, but like 10,000 or something. And it was called Bitcoin 2021. I'm flying into Miami for this conference. And I had, I was not a crypto expert. And my ideas about this were, I'd been reading about it in the news like everyone else. And I had sort of this idea that, okay, I'm skeptical of crypto, but also a lot of big companies are getting involved. Like the market is going legit. And I was sort of, that's what I was thinking going to Miami. And I get there and it's like, oh no, these are not Wall Street guys here. These are like crypto fanatics. I mean, there's a, just their enthusiasm for it went well beyond any sort of like normal thing that you would see from Wall Street guys. I came up through covering the world of finance. But these guys are like, they're lined up in the sun for hours wearing t-shirts advertising like their favorite coins. People were trying to promote one 
called Cum Rocket at the time. And like, it was as if they were having a contest for how stupid these coins could be. Like they were not trying to say Cum Rocket was going to help track the supply chain better on the blockchain. It was just like, hey, here's Cum Rocket tokens and you should buy them. That's what's so kind of you get from this conference. There's overnight, there's sort of this culture pops up of crypto bros. There's a whole language around it, DGen. And, and as you say, sort of this, this incredible belief that doesn't, don't worry how it works. It's all, and this is where you get the title of the book, right? Number go up. And these incredible claims made that had, and this is the part sort of the half ludicrous, half deeply tragic nature of, of this story is that, you know, people were at the same breath, El Salvador was announcing that it was going to, Bitcoin was going to be the, the state currency and so forth. I mean, just the, I don't know, the incredible hype around this. And we, we knew people that went there as well. Just unbelievable. If you got there and you were, you know, let's say you were kind of curious, you'd been sent there by, you know, your boss at Goldman Sachs or something to evaluate whether Goldman should start doing something in crypto. Like the, what you would have come back with is like, these people are insane. Like no, no one I've met seems trustworthy at all. However, there is quite a lot of money in this. Like, <laughs> I guess maybe we shouldn't rule it out. But I mean, what was crazy for me is, so, so I set up interviews there with all the people that had something to do with this coin called Tether. And so this turned out to be like a lot of the biggest players in the crypto market. I sat down with one named Alex Mashinsky who had a company called Celsius. And this was like a crypto bank. He now was recently, uh, it went bust, like spoiler alert, it went bust. And it turned out to be a giant fraud. And Mashinsky was just arrested the other day. But at the time, this was like a big legit company in crypto. We sat down, I didn't really know much about it. And I'm a polite guy. So I'm like, what I really want is dirt on this company, Tether. Like I've been there to investigate, I'm there to investigate Tether. But as a polite guy, I'm like, all right, Alex, thanks for taking this meeting. What's, what's your company about? What's this Celsius thing? And I'm, you know, this is off the top of my head, so it might not be exact, but he's like, okay, we're sort of, uh, we're not a bank, but then he describes something that's kind of like a bank, but he's saying you deposit your crypto with Celsius and he'll pay you interest rates as high as 18%. And if you want to loan, the rates to borrow from Celsius are as low as 0%. So he's paying 18%, up to 18% on deposits and earning as little as 0% on loans. So I know enough about finance that I'm like, this business plan makes no sense. This company seems very suspicious. Making a note in my head, I should probably investigate them when I get back to New York. And But then I'm like, okay, well, so how much money does Celsius manage? thinking it's going to be with this kind of like business plan that like a even a child would question. I'm thinking he's probably not managing more than like a, I don't know, a couple million bucks or something. And he says, oh, $20 billion. Like this is like a giant crypto company. And it's got, when I ask him to explain how they're earning this money, his explanation makes no sense. And when I ask him whether this is approved by regulators, he goes into this long story about how say, it's not, he's not a bank. He's just like a friendly neighbor who's come to borrow your sugar. And therefore, it shouldn't be regulated. I'll give you back coffee instead of sugar. And I mean, it, yeah. it's kind of fascinating how close you also get because you become friends with actually 
his lead trader for a period who also decides that this is definitely headed in the wrong direction and subsequently gets calls from the FBI and so forth. You get really close to all these people, right? I mean, it's it's not like in some... I mean, OK, the tether guys, which we'll come on to, prove elusive. Perhaps they've been around the block a few times on some of this stuff, which, we, you know, the his, their histories are covered in the book. There's also kind of this bizarre transparency... And again, like, I mean, who am I to talk about this, right? I also bought various crypto coins. and There's a lot of pressure at the time, right, when you saw your friends making, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in them. But there's also kind of this weird transparency that, you know, he was, Mashinsky was just telling you everything, but it, somehow the, the, the emperor still had clothes. He had me over to his apartment in New York. And the king of this kind of, I also in Miami met the king of this kind of apparent transparency. He's 29 years old. He was worth something like $20 billion on paper. He dressed like a total schlub. He's always in t-shirt and shorts. He's got a giant mop of curly hair. And he was in Miami to rename the Miami Heat's arena after his cryptocurrency company, FTX. That's Sam Bankman Freed. And this guy was totally approachable and was ready to tell me all about his exchange and how he used Tether to move money. So I left Miami thinking, this crypto world is full of fascinating characters. They seem really approachable compared to the people in finance who I'm used to writing about. And this idea I had in my head that maybe this was getting institutional and that it would be kind of boring was 100% not true. Like this was a really crazy world. And I realized that it was perfect for me and that I it was time to dive in and to meet more people in crypto. I was investigating Tether, but I also had this central question of like, why are all these coins going up and up? How do they, then there were a lot of companies with like Celsius that paid high interest rates. And I was th- wondering like, where do these interest rates, where are they getting this money? Or like NFTs, like they were selling for, the prices were soaring. Some of them were selling for like hundreds of thousands of dollars. These are like the JPEGs of cartoons. Just the whole thing was so wild that I just wanted to get to the bottom of it. And when I was, ever since I was a kid, I've always wanted to write one of these adventurous nonfiction books. Like I love Into Thin Air by John Krakauer or Bring Down the House by Ben Mesrich. These stories about people who are doing crazy stuff like out in the world. And I thought I just hadn't found the right thing. But as I got into crypto world, and started meeting all these people, I was like, oh, this is the adventure. Like, you're on it right now. This is going to be an awesome book. Like, start taking better notes. <laughs> yeah. And I love, I mean, like, you do travel the world, and in parts to see the, the absolute pain wrought by, and we're going to come on to it, by crypto, but also kind of just these larger-than-life parties, 20-room yachts, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, you, you know, you also, I mean, what's bizarre is your book really spans two years, and and in that, you I mean you were in the room, basically in Sam Bankman Freed's apartment, as it all kind of came collapsing down. Just tell us a little bit about because tether is the thread that runs through the book, and it's kind of the thread that's still left open at the end of it, right? In some ways, so tether is this U.S. stablecoin. It's advertised. It is advertised that for every dollar in Tether, there's a dollar somewhere in a bank or in a very, very safe security. That transpires from your reporting not to be the case. It's also kind of the casino chip, which you buy to then go play 
in these markets. And can you just tell us a bit about Tether and this this chap Giancarlo Devasini, who is the CFO but de facto CEO and head of of Tether? Yes. So Devasini, he's. Uh, I quickly learned that he is in the man in charge of Tether, and at the he's in his fifties. He's Italian. He's from Milan. When he was a young man, he trained as a plastic surgeon. But I find a post on Facebook uh, from an art show, and this photographer had taken pictures of people's uh, people who had had turning points in their life. And there was a little essay about Giancarlo's life, and he wrote about how when he was in the, he must have only been like twenty five, and he just realized he didn't like doing boob jobs. He didn't like doing nose jobs. This was like an empty life. And he said that just one day he walked out of the office. He never looked back, never took their calls and moved to China. Digging through uh, what I can find on the internet to learn about his background. And he pops up again a few years later and he's running like a computer business and he gets accused of counterfeiting by Microsoft. Essentially, this was back when software came on floppy disks and he was accused of uh, distributing counterfeit software. He settled this accusation with a fine of something like $50,000. He then had, he had a factory where he was, he was selling RAM chips that he was importing and the factory burned down in a fire. And Tether on its website had this description of Jean Collar's career that painted him as being like a really successful businessman. But from what I could tell, he was operating in like the total low end of the electronics business and had been accused of some shady stuff. I even found, created a copy protection scheme for DVDs that had been licensed to a porn company. Like he just, he didn't seem like he was at the pinnacles of the electronics business. And Tether had claimed that his companies had had sold and that's how he had sold them and made like a good deal. But from what I could tell from Italian corporate records, the companies had their revenue had declined and they'd filed for bankruptcy. So I saw some like discrepancies there. And I thought in my experience, if you can find one thing that's suspicious, like there's probably more things. And this was just like adding to this huge pile of, of red flags about Tether. I often want to speak to, if I'm going to write about a company, like I did with Mashinsky or Sam Bankman-Fried, I'll go right to the top and interview the the head of the company. But with Tether, Giancarlo never spoke to reporters. He wasn't accessible, which increased my curiosity. Because really the question was, right, I'm just going to, they, they say they got this $50 billion, but like, where is it? Like, that's a lot of money. It would make Tether, if it was a bank, like the 50 biggest bank in the US, something like that. So I'm wondering if they do have this money, there should be someone who'll say, oh, I'm holding the money for them. But it just became, it became very difficult to try to track it down. But it was a really fun trip too. So I, one of the people I found who would say he had held some of Tether's money was a banker in the Bahamas named Jean Chalapin. And he was the chairman of this bank called Deltec. And I flew down there to meet him in his office. And he, like everyone connected with Tether has a, has a great resume. Um, he had, was the creator of the cartoon Inspector Gadget. 
uh, like a very successful career in the entertainment business. He's French. He had he'd sold his animation company years earlier, and he'd bought this colonial mansion in the Bahamas, which you've actually probably seen it before. If you've ever seen the Bond movie Casino Royale, although he later sold it and it was it was uh, uh, developed into the luxury resort where. Sam Bankman-Fried lived in like a strange coincidence. Well, well, not that strange given the Bahamas connection to this, but yeah, carry on. Yes, true. Shalapin says, yes, Deltek has held some of Tether's money. And when it was with us, we really did hold the money. They're not making it up. But now it's grown and we only hold some of the money and I can't, uh, I can't account for it all. And he tells me a little bit about meeting Giancarlo and says that Giancarlo had bought a house near his in the Bahamas. You know, these Tether guys were misunderstood. They were nice guys. They just had trouble dealing with the press. Like so many times in this Tether story, I'm left with like, okay, this is some interesting info, but I haven't gotten to, I haven't gotten to the bottom of it. I felt like it was really important to try to meet Giancarlo and interview him. I went to a conference hosted by Tether and Lugano, and I thought that he would maybe be too shy to show up but finally after years of looking there he was in person and i was really excited about the idea that i finally get to ask him all these questions about tether in the end the company would not engage with me well let's uh because i want to come back to that but essentially and you did get a very strange text that night which is you know from giancarlo which i'll leave for readers to discover themselves but essentially the question with tether is they obviously they own their own mint right so that's sort of, you know, is it one for one in the printing of and, and where are these, where indeed is this money? But let's come back to there and kind of wrap up with your findings there and, and look to the future. The HC Insider podcast is brought to you by HC Group, a retained search, intelligence and advisory firm focused solely on the global energy and commodity sector. With six locations across Asia, Europe and the Americas and over 50 consultants. To find out more, go to our website, hcgroup.global. There, you can also sign up for our HC Insider content for more interviews and white papers on relevant trends and talent impacts in the commodities world. So we, in kind of 2017, whenever it was, 18, we kind of had this, it was all about coins and ICOs. In 2021, 2022, it was all about, yeah, NFTs. It was still about the cryptocurrencies. It was also... DeFi and all these incredible interest rates that were being handed out at a time when interest rates were zero, and we had a, a mutual, a, you know, someone we both admire, Edward Chancellor, on talking about the impact of interest rates and what it would do, and, and that has played out, and I think is still doing so. But you end up the next big conference, and during the period intervening between Miami and now, prices have just gone supernova, and you, you're in the Bahamas. In April 2022, meeting again your friend SBF. I mean, it's just kind of amazing, right? The, Tony Blair was there, Bill Clinton was there, Big Papa, Michael Lewis, you know, lauding these individuals as sort of the future of the world economy, right? And and these these people that were incredible pioneers, the next Steve Jobs and so forth. Can you sort of pick the story up there just to give us a, a sense of kind of how pro the world was, and then we'll move on to the dark, tragic underbelly, what was going on in the background. It's kind of easy to forget now, but there was this time, this two-year period that I think of as like 
possibly the greatest financial mania the world has ever seen, where it really did look like crypto could keep going up and up. Like so much money was being made on crypto that it kind of took on its own logic. And when I would, uh, there was a writer who wrote a profile of Sam Bankman-Fried who was working, it was commissioned by a venture capital firm. And he said, when I was sitting with Sam Bankman-Fried, I started to think to myself, I'm interviewing the world's first trillionaire. And like he, he rightly was teased a lot for that, but I totally know the feeling. Like you're sitting with this guy, and even though I'm very skeptical of cryptocurrencies, the market was not crashing. And I'm like, who am I? I'm just some some reporter. Like, who am I to say, you know, bored apes are not the future of art? Like, maybe this is just how the world is going to work now. Uh, so I was down in the Bahamas for Sam Bankman Fried's big conference. It was, yeah, April 2022. And it was... Uh, it was sort of a celebration. FTX's exchange was now valued at $32 billion. He'd flown in Tony Blair, Bill Clinton, Katy Perry was there, Tom Brady, the retired quarterback, and like everyone who is anyone in crypto. Again, I'm, I guess this is sort of a theme, but I was thinking, I'm skeptical of crypto, but I am thinking, all right, all these important and smart people are here. I'm going to hear about some legitimate ideas. And they're going to really reckon with like what's going on in crypto. And because Bankman Fried, if you talk to him, he was not one of these people who was saying he was not one of these number go up people. Like he would tell you, oh, yeah, like a lot of these coins, there's probably not much to it. Like it seems kind of scammy, but like, hey, I'm going to run like an honest exchange. And in the long run, I think there is a, a business here and that will be the successful ones. So, I mean, I'm sure he tailored his pitch to his audience and could tell that I was I was skeptical and that he should this would go over better with me. But I get to this conference, it's just a hundred percent hype. Like each idea, just like in Miami, each idea I hear is like worse than the next. Still no one has provided a explanation to me of how all these crazy interest rates are being earned. At the time there was one called it was a whole system called Terra Luna and Anchor. It was really, really popular. Another one with tens of billions of dollars invested in it. And it paid 20% interest. And there was no explanation of how they earned this interest rate. The whole thing made no sense on its face. It seemed like pretty clearly a Ponzi. And yet people were putting tons and tons of money into it. Yeah, in the Bahamas, I I had a great conversation with this guy who was, he had made a cryptocurrency. It was a game a spaceship game called Star Atlas. It sounded like really fun. You'd command your own spaceship. You could battle people, like you could upgrade it or whatever. And he said that he had sold about $200 million of these spaceships already and other virtual items. I actually like video games. And like I said, I try to be nice. So I'm like, all right, that sounds cool. Let's uh, let's play this game. Let's try it out. Give me a spaceship to command. And the guy's like... Oh, no, 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 no. Like, this game doesn't exist yet. You just buy your virtual spaceship, and then you can use it to earn, like, interest in our special currency called Atlas Token. This wasn't... at the t There was another one I heard about where you bought virtual shoes, and you earned Green Satoshi Token. And people were earning, like, huge returns on this. 
for walking around like people were doing walking out around outside Sam Bankman Fried's off- FTX's offices earning these tokens, right? I mean, I think that's something I think is getting lost in the coverage of the FTX fraud now. People are very rightly fixated on eight billion dollars are gone. The company was the company's collapsed and customers lost all their money. But even at the good times, this was like an offshore casino where you gambled on really dumb coins like green Satoshi tokens, which were connected to the shoes or smooth love potions, which were connected to another kind of video game where you earned money. Which is where the pain comes. We won't talk about it right now, but you obviously, one aspect is you'll go to the Philippines and you've, and this is the challenge, right? You've got people giving up their jobs or investing their life savings, which would subsequently fall. In the Philippines, for example, where they can earn a few dollars a day collecting these smooth love potions, which is better than your job as a teacher or a truck driver or whatever it might be. And, and it's, you spend time with these people. There's even a darker side. Well, not if it can be darker, but you know, Tether itself and, and other, other crypto stablecoins were also just central to criminal activity, both money laundry, but also the scams. And we all get these messages on our phones. And you got one that triggered a whole episode and p- piece of discovery in the book. But can you this is this is the term and it's a terrible term pig butchering but is ultimately about human trafficking and people being enslaved to essentially scam westerners of of you know using crypto tether as well as the medium can you just spend a few minutes there because i kind of while all this money and this hype was being made in one area ultimately there were these huge losers and that loss is about to get much worse in the summer of 2022 but can you just talk about your trip to cambodia briefly You always hear like, okay, that crypto can be used for crime, that it might be being used for money laundering. And that was an explanation that was put forward to me a lot when I would ask about Tether's continued popularity. People would say that it was being used for money laundering, but I hadn't seen proof of this or like a lot of specifics until I get one of these spam text messages that we all get. And it just said, hey, Dave, it's Vicky. What's going on? Or something like that. And I said, I was out for drinks with my friend when this message came in. I'd heard about these kind of messages. And I decided, you know what? Maybe I was in like a silly mood, but I was like, I'll play along. So I wrote back to Vicky. I said, you know, I'm not Dave, I'm Zeke. And we started chatting. And she followed the script that all these scammers follow which is that she tries to make friends with me. Maybe there's some flirting. She's sending pictures of herself. She's like a pretty young woman. She starts to drop hints that she's wealthy, that she knows how to trade. Her uncle has taught her these special tricks. And then after like several days, she invites me to trade with her. And she says to download this crypto trading app, which looks just like a regular one, but is actually like a scam controlled by her. And she's like, you, in order to send me money, you need to download a regular crypto trading app like Coinbase or Crypto.com, buy some of this coin called Tether, and then send it over to the special app where we could make these really profitable trades. So I buy 100 Tethers on a different exchange, zap it over. In a continued theme of the book, I, in doing so, I paid $19 in fees. So... I've started with 100 and left with 81 by the time I've I've sent it to her. She says, don't worry, we'll make it up on the trade. At this point, 
she says, I need to start sending her more and more money. I don't do it. And she, she ghosts me. But the way the scam typically works is they'll show you fake gains. You'll think you're making money in this app. You'll send more and more money. And once they've gotten as much money out of you as they think that they can get, they'll even let you take out like a small amount of gains as proof to build your confidence. But they'll get people to send in like a hundred thousand, a million dollars. I'm looking into one right now with a colleague where someone might have sent fifty million dollars. Not sure if that's true, but it would definitely be like a record. But uh, they really suck people in and get them to send in whatever they can get out of them, and then then they steal it all. It's called pig butchering because they're fattening up this victim and then slaughtering them, taking taking them for whatever they're worth. As you said, the real, there's a really dark side to it. Vicky's being forced to do this on the other side, right? I mean, there's, this is where it gets really dark. Yes, this is the part that sounds conspiracy-ish. And I'm here to tell you that it's true. The people who are sending these messages are themselves often victims. They've seen a job ad that says they're going to make good money for like customer service. They've traveled to Myanmar or Cambodia to take this job, then when they get there, they're trapped in like these office towers and under threat of beatings, torture, electric shock, they're forced to, to scam people and to trick them into sending crypto. Like if I tried to charge a hundred bucks on my visa card and send it to like a scammer in Cambodia, I mean, first of all, like visa would probably call me and be like, are you sure you want to send your money to Cambodia? And I would be like, hey, I think uh, I thought Vicky was in New York. Second of all, like you could charge it back. Um, it just would it would not work like this. But with crypto, I can send Vicky 100 tethers or 81 tethers after fees. It's instantly zapped over to Cambodia and there's nothing I can do about it. And I talked with experts who'd been tracking these pig butchering scams who said that as much as $10 billion had been stolen this way. And when I talked with victims who'd, who'd sent their money, victim, like the victims in the US or other well-off countries, and almost universally, they said that they'd been asked to use Tether. And at this point, I've been on Tether's trail for a long time. I had no reason to believe the Tether executives were part of these scams. I just thought, wow, this is another example where crypto people have created this system and they're just not paying any attention to impact it has in the real world. So I decided to go to Cambodia. I teamed up with two local reporters who Mech Dara and Danielle Keaton Olson, who'd done amazing work exposing some of these scam compounds. We went to a place called Chinatown where it was in Sihanoukville in southwestern Cambodia. It's like a whole office park with maybe like 40 towers that had all been filled with these scam slaves. There were reports of suspicious deaths in the area. I spoke with people who escaped, who'd been beaten, who'd been tortured, who'd seen other people killed. These compounds were generally run by Chinese gangsters. And when I got there, like you could see that uh, it was truly, it was very spooky. You could see that the stores on the ground floor of the, there was of these office towers, they had a lot of stores on the ground floor that often had signage in Chinese because the people who are actually shopping are the bosses who would speak Chinese, not like the locals who would speak Khmer. And the stores were even bisected on the inside by metal bars so that the 
workers, if they went in the store, would enter from the back, from the inside of this kind of office park. And there were metal bars like in the middle of the restaurant or a barbershop or whatever. So if you came in through the back, you couldn't escape through the front. And a lot of these buildings had been built with balconies and they had metal bars welded onto these balconies so that they were like cages. If you wanted to like try to jump down or climb down from these, you know, 20 story buildings, you wouldn't be able to. It's really quite harrowing, the accounts of the, the escapees, you know, and the, the scale of... Yes, the UN actually just put out a report estimating that hundreds of thousands of people have been victimized and were forced to work in these online scams in Southeast Asia. And key to this as well is that Tether doesn't keep any of the records, right? As you said, if you're sending this with a bank, there's obligations to record where these transactions are going. Tether does none of that. Well, I should say the way that it works is that Tether is it's it's on different blockchains. You can have your Tethers on the Ethereum blockchain or the Tron blockchain. But basically what it means is that if I'm on Ethereum, I can have my wallet and my wallet address is just like a string of random numbers and letters. And I can hold my tethers in that wallet and nobody needs to know who I am. And I can zap them to Cambodia and they move over there and nobody needs to know who, uh, who's receiving them. And tether's position is that they don't need to know that they, so tether says they do know their customers because they consider their customers to be only a small circle of people who have permission to send tethers to the company directly and receive cash back or to send cash to the company and receive tether tokens. People, once those tokens are out into the world, they say it's not their responsibility to keep track of who's using them. It's sort of like virtual cash. Going back to the timeline, right? And again, there's so much in the book. Just before we get to the crash of summer 2022 and it all starts to unravel for, for many, by this point... Do you have a sense of where Tether's money is or what kind of instruments it's in and some of those actually being more risky than they are advertising? Fairly early on in my investigation, I obtain a document that shows that a lot of Tether's money, billions of dollars, has been invested in Chinese commercial paper, like short-term loans to Chinese companies. This was certainly riskier than advertised. I mean, and at the time... Tether's pitch is always like, you give us a dollar, we give you a Tether token, and we're going to hold on to that dollar and keep it safe. And if you ever want it back, it'll be there. But their incentive, especially at a time of zero interest rates, Tether wants to earn money. They're sitting on this pile of $50 billion. And if they can invest it in anything, that's pure profit for them because holders of Tether tokens don't receive interest. So what I found was that they were investing it in securities, including those Chinese commercial paper. Again, once you start going down this rabbit hole, it's very hard to decide decide where the truth is. They're releasing their own financial reports that are showing that the money is all there. They get like a auditor to sign off on it, although it's not a formal audit. But meanwhile, there's still like all these, uh, even people in the industry who use Tether will be like, well, I'm not so sure. Like, I think they probably have nearly all the money, but like it might be invested in some dodgy stuff. That's like the gist of what Sam Bankman-Fried had told me. But no matter how much I investigate what Tether's invested in, it takes me to meet all these crazy characters, but I don't I don't find the answers that, that I'm looking for. And it's funny, isn't it? Because I mean, I guess we might end up here, whether it's just 
it's like a fiat currency, that sort of word they all, the crypto world hated in, in that conference. Everyone benefits if they believe in it. But OK, so then in summer 2022, prices absolutely start tanking. You have Daquan and Luna, which is kind of a an Alameda and FTX type thing go down. That then actually we subsequently find out triggers lots of withdrawals from Alameda, which is the the trading arm of Sam Bankman-Fried's empire. It all sort of seems okay, and then a couple of months later, Sam Bankman-Fried sends a text to CZ, who runs Binance, and it all very quickly unravels. This isn't really a, the, the SBF story that we're talking about here, but it's fascinating that you were in his house, in his apartment, having having vegan takeaway with his key lieutenants as all this starts unraveling. Can you just give us the bare bones of kind of what had happened because this was all expected then to create a run on Tether, which it did to some extent, but it still held. So can you just take us to that, that I think, Sunday when you're with SBF and crew? So Terra Luna scheme, that was the one I mentioned earlier that paid 20% interest that had all this money invested in it, inevitably collapses. The just the tr- Basically, the truth comes out. And it's that so many people in the crypto world, even ones who claim to be like geniuses who figured out no lose arbitrage trading. They were all betting on number go up in some way. And the companies start collapsing one after another. Prices of all the currencies go down. And Tether, as you mentioned, actually holds up pretty amazingly. Users request billions of dollars of withdrawals. And Tether actually does have the cash to send it to them. Now, of course, this does not satisfy the skeptics who are like, hey, just because they have $3 billion doesn't prove that they have the whole $50 billion. To be fair, it's pretty impressive that they made it through when all these other companies collapsed. And FTX, not the first to collapse, but it turns out that the trading arm had borrowed lots of money backed by random coins with high valuations, and these loans get called in. They don't have the money. Allegedly, they decide to just fill the gap on the, with their, from their trading arm with customer funds from the exchange, which is obviously not legit at all. And when the customer, when there's a run on the exchange and the customers ask for their money back, it's not there and FTX fails. Around that time, I'm thinking, okay, this looks really bad. It looks like a total fraud. I mean, it's, if you boil it down to like a casino, which is how I thought of FTX, it doesn't matter if everyone cashes in their chips in at once. The casino should have the money, and FTX didn't. So, like, looks like the money, somebody stole the money. It looked really bad for Sam Bankman Fried. But at the time, he hadn't been arrested, he hadn't been charged with anything. And there was actually kind of this belief among crypto people that somehow, because he'd become like an influential political donor, he was going to get off easy. It was misguided, obviously. But I'm thinking, okay, I don't trust Sam. Look, it really looks like he committed fraud here, but I'm kind of curious like what he's what his side of the story is and what he's going to say about this. And yeah, just like what it's like in his life right now as the authorities are like pretty likely closing in on him. So I flew down to the Bahamas and after some back and forth, I got him to invite me up to his penthouse, which is in this resort called Albany, the former the the resort that was developed on the site of Jean Chalapin's Bond villain mansion. Truly an impressive place. I've never been anywhere like it. I felt like it's like a there's a marina with a ringed by these condo towers 
It's a beautiful lawn. It's high security. You can't get in. Everybody is super fit. It even kind of like smells rich. These yachts are giant, like 200-foot yachts. And Bankman Freed has a penthouse that cost him something like 30 or $40 million. Uh, it was not something he'd showed me on my previous visits because he really liked to paint himself as not caring about money, someone who just got rich so that he could save the world. But he, this is where he was living. So I went up to his apartment and I really had no idea what to expect. I mean, I wasn't sure if he would be totally despondent, desperate, panicked, but I found him holding it together in a similar way to when the first time I met him, when things were going really well. We ended up spending hours and hours talking about what had happened. And he even got out his laptop and was typing in spreadsheets and trying to like come up with these explanations for where this money had gone. Eight billion. <laughs> it was quite implausible. <laughs> Eight billion, right, was the sort of, you know... Hey, yeah, you know. without getting into the details. I mean, he was trying to argue that essentially he had lost track of this money and that it was just, it was not his fault that it was gone. And I'm sitting there thinking like, you are very smart. You went to MIT. You're a trader at Jane Street, like a super well-regarded Wall Street firm. You're supposedly like this did a great job at crypto arbitrage at Alameda. Your whole life revolves around money. And the idea, even though you have quite a lot of it, the idea that you would lose track of $8 billion just didn't make any sense to me. And he even seemed to be blaming it on the head of Alameda, Caroline Ellison, who he had dated at times. Sitting there with him, I'm really trying my best to understand what his argument is. And I'm like, are you really saying that, is your argument really that your ex-girlfriend did it? Other thing I was thinking when I went down there is maybe he's finally ready to tell me the truth about, about Tether because he had had tons of dealings with Tether. I really thought that if anyone would know what was going on, he definitely would. So while I was there, I was like, hey, I mean, now that FTX is kind of closed, do you want to tell me what's going on with Tether? And he said that, that there was no big secret. However, he also said that he had approached Tether for a bailout. And at that time, he was still talking like he was somehow going to get this $8 billion back and kind of get FTX up and running again and that everything would be okay. So I felt like even though Tether had turned him down for this bailout, he was still probably kind of hoping for one. And therefore, I wasn't sure if I believed what he was saying about Tether. So it was just like a marathon session. By the time I left, it was like it was like midnight, something like that. I felt like there was just nothing more to be gained by talking with him about it. And yeah, just maybe a week or two later, he got the knock on the door from the from the cops and was taken to Fox Hill Prison in the Bahamas. His trial in the U.S. is supposed to be coming up in uh, just a few weeks. But again, people should read it, right? There's so much more in that story than you're, you know, in terms of understanding and unpicking what was going on. I mean, a lot of them were just making investments because they had to put the money somewhere into other crypto startups which obviously then caused a cascading effect i mean just fascinating right i mean we haven't even covered the world's largest heist that was uh which was stole money from tether which is currently at trial the fact that we haven't got time to talk about the world's largest biggest ever heist carried out by a two pretty strange couple in manhattan that stole 
however many billions it was. But let's just go back to Tether. It, it has maintained its its dollar valuation. Where is that story? Is this is this it is what it says it is? Yes, it doesn't have everything in dollars, but it's all reasonably safe, reasonably liquid securities, and it is legit. And will you know will continue all. Is it sort of the the other shoe is yet to drop? I don't feel like I can endorse Tether now. And in fact, I can say that human traffickers are using it in Cambodia to fuel their like horrible scam compounds, which is something that if Tether was a bank, you know, bank regulators might have something to say about it. And I think it's possible regulators still might have something to say about illicit uses of Tether and other cryptocurrencies. But in terms of their reserves and the question of whether they have the money let's just say hypothetically if they had been short some money in the past right now interest rates are way up if they do have 80 billion dollars or anywhere close to it in reserves they can easily earn five percent on that money and if you believe the numbers that they're putting out there tether now is earning crazy returns Giancarlo and all the people not crazy returns crazy amounts of money just by investing in like US treasuries. And that Tether, if again, if you believe their numbers, they are one of the most profitable companies in the world, more than like Nike. And yeah, and all the top people there are are billionaires. So so far, they totally come out as the as the winners. But let's just say I told the editor that like, you know, there might be a new epilogue for the second edition, but we'll have to see what it is. Yeah, okay. Well, just another question, right? I mean, this is very recent history. Everyone, I'd love to know the stats on on sort of how many taxpayers currently either have crypto or have had crypto, you know, as part of their asset allocation. We've all, I certainly have, we've all lost some money on it. I mean, what do you think the response to this book is? I mean, how well known is this story about the characters, about kind of the insouciance that people approached the use of other people's money, the tracking of that money. I mean, all of these stories are stories of, yes, incredibly rapid growth, but really pretty schoolboy errors, like we're talking about the Alameda story, when it comes to investment decision, tracking these billions of dollars. I mean, what do you expect the reception to be? Do, is, and, 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 and I mean, this, presumably it's going to be quite a bit of backlash, not least from Tether. Yes. I mean, if you are still a big believer in crypto... I'm going to be nicer to the crypto people. And I'm going to say that I think that if you're an honest crypto, even if you're a big enthusiast for crypto now, you still know that these last couple of years have been absolutely insane and that this would be really entertaining to to read about. And I feel lucky that I was there. That I was like, there's no way to go back and and do this, that I was there with, with these guys when things were going up while I was there at their parties and I'm like I was at SBF's house when just before the authorities got there. And I think that even if you really like crypto, this is like a amazing time to relive. And I think that now I'm not a believer. And I think that what's actually going to happen is that one day, like my grandkids are going to be like, wait, like Justin Bieber paid $2 million for a picture of a monkey. Like what happened? And I will say, if you want to understand the craziness that enveloped the world for like two years, you need to go back and read this book that I wrote called Number Go Up. I think that the more time that passes, the more insane this is all going to seem. 
Charles McCainy's new chapter, right? I mean, <laughs> yes. So I'm hoping that crypto guys will will enjoy it too. But I'm sure that some of them will say that I missed the true potential of the blockchain, and that I I just don't get why Bitcoin is digital gold or things like that. That's the fascinating part as well. Is it's kind of like you could argue that humanity invented or Satoshi, or whatever, invented this amazing tool that actually should unlock our ability to have trustless transactions and, and would be a very powerful and you know and then again in, in the commodities world they are trying to work on this being a way of making markets more efficient but it's kind of like we invented the tool and the first thing we did with it was ruin it ruin its reputation by creating gifts of bored chimps and having jimmy fallon and paris hilton sell them for two hundred fifty thousand dollars, and in the process wreck a lot of middle class um, investors you know and young investors their life savings. Yes, I think you've got to judge crypto by what has actually happened. And it's been around as long as Uber, as long as WhatsApp, and it has not become a useful thing in people's lives. And it has led to huge numbers of scams, tons of people's life savings lost, a lot of wealth for a few people who got in early or invented these coins, but like a lot of losses for everyone else. And to me, the lesson is that this shows why we have securities regulation, why we have transparency, and why you should be cautious when somebody's telling you that they've got like the hot new thing. And obviously, we've got uh, Gary Gensler at the SEC. We've also had the CFTC on this podcast as well. And there is a lot of scrutiny and emphasis going into this. But we're running on, but we could definitely do another hour on the, on this book. Zeke, it's been a real pleasure to have you on. We'll put links to the book in the show notes. As you say, whether you're a fan or not of crypto, or whether you're just sort of the, the, the mild investor or sort of passive onlooker, the characters and the stories and kind of the the humanity in, in all of its sort of warts and all in this story is fascinating. And yeah, like you say, I mean, you were there at every moment and providing a unique insight. Thank you so much, Paul. It was really fun talking with you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and HC Group, a search and advisory firm dedicated to the commodity markets, visit our website at www.hcgroup.global. There you can find out more about our services and our offices around the world. There you can also find more content from interviews to insight pieces to more podcasts focused on the commodity value chains. Thanks again for listening.